Hello, we're live. I'm Rachel Barenbaum. Welcome to Author Spotlight. I am the author of the forthcoming novel, Atomic Anna, and I am so excited to have you here today to introduce you to a repeat guest for me, Ellen Alpston. I had her on here last year for her debut, and it was so good that I had to have her back for book number two. So Ellen, hello. Welcome to Author Spotlight. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you so much for having me again. And yes. me and my new girl. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited. So before we dig into the questions, I'm going to read your biography and introduce you to some of my listeners. If you haven't read her first book, you should pick them both up together and read them. Ellen Alpston was born and raised in the Kenyan highlands. Upon graduating from l'Institut d'études politiques de Paris, she worked as a news anchor for Bloomberg TV London. Whilst working gruesome night shifts on breakfast TV, she started to write in earnest every day after work and a nap. I love that. Today, Ellen works as an author and as a journalist for international publications such as Vogue, Standpoint, and CN Traveler. She lives in London with her husband, three sons, and a moody fox red Labrador. <laughs> Ellen, welcome. I'm so happy to have you back. This is your second book, The Sarina's Daughter. Look at that gorgeous cover. Wow. So tell me, what is this book about? It is really on the inside what it says on the tin. It's about the Tsarina's daughter, the Empress Elizabeth, who was the daughter of Russia's first Empress, Catherine I, and who lives the inverse of her mother's life. Because if her mother rises from serf to empress, Elizabeth falls from unimaginable riches to rags before she rises from rags to Romanov. Oh, that is beautiful. Before she rises. I love that. Okay, but really, um, you have what is going to be a trilogy coming, right? So this is the, the middle part of, you know, a three part novel series. Can you talk about the first book, right? And the second one and how this whole series is coming together and your vision here, please. Yes, the first book was my debut, Serena, which was published bang, bang smack, really, for COVID and then the US elections. So aren't we lucky? We all know what that means yes. as, as an yes. author. Still, my girl overcame those problems as well, because that's what she does. She rose from being an illiterate, illegitimate serf, so less than a slave, to being Russia's first ever ruling empress. Uh, as a prisoner of war, she met Peter the Great after 10 years. He married her after 20 years. He crowned her at his death. She took the crown for herself. Um, in the same time, we witnessed Russia's transformation from a backward nation to the beginnings of a modern superpower. So this is Tsarina. And in Tsarina, we catch a glimpse of Elizabeth, who is the heroine of the Tsarina's daughter. But when I started doing research about her, it was fascinating what sort of character sort of peeled itself from the shadows of time. I love it. Okay, so tell me about Serena's daughter. What do we have in here? So here we have Elizabeth, who is hailed as the world's loveliest princess. And very often, you know, when you look at portraits from olden days, it's actually tough to tell what these people really looked like. But there's this fantastic portrait of Elizabeth painted by Louis Caravac, which was sent to Versailles because she was supposed to marry King Louis XV. Uh, Louis XV. And he held her as the world's loveliest princess, and she's really like a young Marilyn Monroe, all dewy-eyed and rosy-cheeked. Um, but fate intervened. In my book, I have this little supernatural element of um, a forest spirit, a forest dweller, whom she meets and who gives her a prophecy. And it's a very delicate cards. They're tarot indeed. cards. Yes, absolutely. And it's like a dark choker, like a rosary bead, and she can work her way through her life um with this prophecy and yes as i say so she falls from unimaginable riches before she has to claw her way back and um become who she is and claim what is hers 
Yeah, so we sort of see her rising up just on the edge, right? We're going to sort of see her, you know, about to take her crown. And then I'm, my understanding is book three is we're going to see her, right, in the glory there, right? Absolutely. Then she's in yes. her full power because, um, yes. Yes, <laughs> I can't continue. wait. Things continue for the Romanov women. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So something that I just want to be very clear about because um, is that you are one of the first people really to be writing fiction, historical fiction on this Catherine and this part of the Romanov family. So we are in 1709 to 1762. This is Elizabeth's life, right? We are at Catherine the First, not Catherine the Great. We are at Peter the Great. Her her father built St. Petersburg up from the swamps, right? He pulled Russia forward to modernity. This was a huge turning point for the family, for Russia, for the empire, um, and surprisingly not written about very often. <laughs> Rachel, I mean, honestly, I can't believe my luck. Sometimes I feel like Howard Carter, who discovered Tutankhamun, and that I feel my girls, as I call them lovingly, because I'm completely obsessed with them, um, yes. lingered sort of in the shadows of history waiting for me because their predecessors, like Peter the Great, or then their successors, like Catherine the Great, made so much noise and shed so much light that they slid into the shadows of history. So, um, yes, I feel it's... It's it's a gift, it's a privilege that I'm allowed to tell these stories of this unique century of female reign in Russia, which is the world's largest and wealthiest realm. Yes, yes, but women that we just never heard about in history, you are picking up and bringing forward. And another thing that I love about your books, um, the two, and I can't wait for the third, is um, that there, you show the side of Russia and the Romanovs, it's almost like an anything can happen. In America, we would sort of call it like the Wild West. I mean, it's easy to look back and say, well, it's your birthright, right? You're, um, you know, and smoothly, I think people trace the line through the Romanovs or whatever. But in fact, right, starting with Catherine the First, she was born a serf. Right. She rose up to rule Russia. It was like, you know, by pure force and violence and, and genius, these women are pushing forward. Um, can you talk about that? You know, you could be anything in Russia mentality. You are absolutely right, because these books are set in the very wild Russian Baroque. And a lot of people were shocked, especially when they read Tsarina and said, is this all true? And, you know, I have to admit that, if anything, I've watered it down because it was just so shocking, just sort of this attitude, this lust for life and sort of the flip side to it, this complete callousness and disregard for life. So if you rise in the morning and you're not quite sure if you're going to see the sunset the same day, you are going to celebrate and live the hell out out of it in between and this is just the mindset and I suppose that's also why Daisy Goodwin said that it makes um, Game of Thrones look like a nursery rhyme which is of course a fantastic quote and and it's unbelievable unbelievable, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah it's a Romanov roller coaster that's how I call it yeah um but you say that also because Peter the Great right he had epilepsy and um was very afraid of you know dying and what was going to happen um he had 15 children uh and Elizabeth was the only survivor, right? So there was this moment, uh, you know, this feeling of, is he going to make it? What's going to happen to Russia? Can you just talk to our listeners about that moment? Um, I think you've described it as when Peter the Great dies, all of Russia, all of the world is holding their breath. What when, is going to happen? When Peter the Great died, definitely he had achieved so much, but he had started even more without having the time to finish it. And he himself rose every morning at four o'clock. And if you look at his letters, they're peppered with now immediately, I told you yesterday, why haven't you done it yet? So he was very aware of time slipping through his fingers. And when he died, Russia was not ready for his death. The country just plunged into this immense vacuum of power. And a little bit like in that famous poem of um, 
the Magician's Apprentice, I think you call it in English, by, by Goethe, you know, there's a Walt Disney where he calls the spirits he cannot master. It's a little bit the same. Peter the Great had called all these Westerners into his country. And the very people he had called to save it and modernize it then brought the country to, to the brink of its demise. And this is when Elizabeth steps up to the plate and she becomes the first people's princess, playing the Russian card very cleverly. Yeah. So I have to admit that I was always tripped up by you talking about how beautiful she was and her beauty, because I really think of Russia and the Romanovs as like as brutal, right, as this, as their strength and their um, sort of brutality, not the beauty. So um, I don't know. Could you just talk a little bit more about why that beauty was always, you know, heralded and why people talk about that so much? I think she got the best of her parents. She had sort of definitely if she had as a downside for a woman in those days, she had inherited the sensuous appetites of her father. So uh, the Spanish ambassador <laughs> said this princess does not have an ounce of nun's flesh on her body, which is very ah! sweet. And others said she's got <laughs> eyes as lively as a bird, you know, sparkling blue. She loved life. She liked laughing. I think like for her mother, her beauty was equally in her spirit. But as I say, do have a look at this Caravac painting and you'll be stunned. She was really, really cute. Right. <laughs> I have to say. But so we have these two great women that you focused on, Catherine the First and then her daughter, Elizabeth. Um, can you talk about, there's this push-pull between needing to be married, needing an heir, right? Knowing that you need to pass along the mantle and yet also wanting to maintain um, power yourself. So how does that play out in, in their lives? The lack of an heir is really like a red thread that runs through actually the whole Romanov dynasty. There's a very yes. interesting quote dating from 1633. So when the Romanovs were just voted into office and it's Nikita Romanov who says the Romanovs are as cursed because our women are as wild as wolverines and our men are as meek as maidens. So there was something genetically wrong with the Romanovs that did not allow them to father or sire strong sons. And actually the true Romanov line died out with, um, with Catherine the Great's husband, who is the nephew of my Empress Elizabeth. Amazing. So, but I mean, so can you just talk a little bit about, um, give us the mentality for Elizabeth. What is it like to, you know, you're, you're sitting there, you want to maintain power, but you also want to have children. What is, I mean, can you just, ca you capture it so well in the book. I would love to hear you talk about that total fear of what is she leaving? She, there is the fear and of course the knowledge of what is expected from her. And at the same time, she starts to have a really good look around and she sees her sister being married off. She sees her cousins married off and even her parents' marriage, you know, I'm sure that she got sort of a very concrete understanding of what it actually meant. And when she sees all these marriages around her, she asks herself, do I actually really want this? Is this the path I want to take? And in a very modern way, she decides to walk her own path and um, fight on her own for what is hers, even though she's well supported. But she does not want to submit to her husband because the examples she sees around her are just too harrowing. I mean, it's shocking. And, and as again, it's all true. Yeah. So we hear a lot in movies in Hollywood. I think um, there's this glamorized, valorized version of Mother Russia, right? That this uh, that is an expression. You're smiling. I'm glad because this is right. You hear this thrown around all the time. And yet I think that she felt it. Can you talk about that Mother Russia ideal and, and how she might have felt that? 
she really felt like Matushka Rosia and part of mm -hmm. Mother Russia and part of the prophecy re she receives is you will be a mother, but you will have no child, um, which she doesn't understand at the time. But then when the moment comes for her to seize the power, and I don't want to give a spoiler, and she goes where she has to go in order to seize the power, she is Mother Russia embodied. She wears the uniform, her hair tumbles, she's got the fur cap, she's wearing the thigh high leather boots. And she's just, I think that physically too, she wasn't quite a Marilena. She loved to eat. She was a real Slavic soul who very casually combined the most astonishing opposites in herself. And But she was at ease with it. You know, she didn't ask herself too many questions. She just went on living, very Baroque again. Right, right. But I love it because we don't, I mean, I'm American. I live in the US right now. And it's very, this idea, you don't think of, you know, our mother country in the same way and this duty in the same way. So I, I just love that you capture that so well. Um, so I want to go back to, I think I've asked you this for the first book too, but there's so much violence in these books and in, in life then. Um, and not as much uh, sexual violence in this one as the first, um, but there's lots of it. Uh, how do you steel yourself to write that and decide what to share and not share in the books? I feel... First of all, I actually abhor violence. I can't see a horror movie. I can't see scenes in films where people beat each other up. I look away. I don't want to see it. But somehow when I read about it in historic researches and then write it up, I just feel it's so necessary to show how closely people lived with death and cruelty. And this awareness, it can happen to me all the time. I mean, the Tsarina's daughter has got, I think, actually only one harrowing scene. We know what happened to her half-brother, but it's not as described as it was in Tsarina. But there's one harrowing scene, what happens to her lover, who amazingly survived, and in a very rare case of Russian history, actually later was saved and lived to great old age <laughs> in prosperity. But what he has to suffer for his love to her is absolutely horrible. So I just want to show how people were you know, they were fascinated, they watched, it was entertainment, but at the same time, they always knew, okay, it can be me next. And that's how the Tsar kept them in check. Yeah, that's amazing that you can't read it or watch it yourself because <laughs> it's in there. So how do you write it? I'm picturing you like closing your eyes as I start um, typing. I don't know. I always try. I want to write with all my senses because that's what brings the book close to the reader. You know, what do you see? What do you smell? What do you touch? What do you hear? And these scenes, of course, lend themselves to that. Likewise, perhaps love and landscape. I remember my first editor telling me, Love and landscape is where I see if somebody can write because everything has been said, everything has been written. If I'm still aroused or still touched, that's a good writer. Love and landscape. Think of that. I love that. I'm going <laughs> to write that down because <laughs> I love that note. Love and landscape. That's so good. Okay. So once again, we are in 1709 to 1762, right? Very, very early on Romanov history. Um, can you talk about your research? People details are unbelievable. You talk about, right, what kind of curtains were hanging in her bedroom, right? I mean, these details are just insane. How do you find them? I just love creating these worlds. It's almost like weaving a loom with a thousand threads to have this sort of tapestry that could cover a wall in the Winter Palace. Of course, if you do your research, you know that yourself, there are certain economies of scale. So for Tsarina, I had did a year of research before I started to write, before I dared writing the opening sentence. So a lot of the basic knowledge was there now. 
the problem for with Serena's daughter was, and I think that explains too why there was never a novel about her before. This is one of the most complex and complicated times in Russian history, which is very rich in complexities and complications. So in the first five years, the throne was orphaned three times. So just keeping as an author on top of that and, you know, simplifying it, but sticking to the truth. So that was a lot of sort of tricky research. I had a lot of books open, especially as one person steps into the limelight who very little is wrote, written about, and that's her cousin Anna Ivanovna, who equally ruled as an empress. And there's only one book by an American researcher, which was published in the 1960s, which is about the Empress Anna. Oh and oh God, just I, one. I had oh to chase God. that down. And I think it comes, it's a cast out from a library in Mississippi. Mississippi. I have to look here, and it's standing in my shelf. And I, when it arrived, you know, I bought a secondhand vintage. I was like, yes, I have the book about the Empress Anna. And it filled so many gaps about, you know, how she starts operas, how circus, how so many things start that today stand for Russia. That's what's so interesting about the world, too, that the modern Russia really rises from these roots that are described in the book. Yeah. I love that you just shared that story with us. Thank you about, you know, how you, you tracked down this library cast off <laughs> because the research, I, I find it always does take these funny twists and turns and it's finding things that are new that really interest you as a writer, which then interests us as the readers, right? For tracking down these details. Amazing. But then how much fact checking are you doing on these kinds of details, you know, for what types of curtains are hanging or, you know, what sort of couch or I don't know, divan they would have? Oh, I do. I do all the time and, and a lot because, for instance, the archives of the Kremlin, the treasures the Kremlin harbors is just incredible from everything from shoes to walking sticks to carriages to horses, saddles to, of course, of course, the apartments have been revamped. But then you have images, especially about the Empress Anna. There are fantastic paintings about the way she held court with the jesters and the dwarves and the parrots in the corner and the Moorish slaves who stood to attention wearing brilliant velvets. It's just this, I mean, it just looks like a theater scene to us if we look at it. And as much as I love Elizabeth as a heroine, I actually loved Anna as a villain and the quality of a book falls and rises with the quality of the villain. Oh, you have so many good golden tidbits, diamonds <laughs> there. I love it. Just, uh... <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Write that one down too. All right, so we have Sherry Brown is listening. Thank you so much. Hi, Sherry. And she wants to know what is the most rewarding and challenging part of writing your books? I think rewarding is to getting to know the person and actually try to imagine her almost as a modern woman. And so you have this very strict framework of historical research. It's almost like in the Olympic Games, you know, when you have duty and ice dancing and you've got the free part. So the duty is for me the historical fr um, framework. And the free part is then actually to make my heroines walk almost like modern women. Of course, I wouldn't say like, okay, Queenie or something like that. But I still want to have them relatable. And of course, the question of emotions, what was it really like? And that is immensely rewarding. They almost become become like friends, but the challenge is to get there. So it's yeah. like a Janos face. Thank yeah. you, that's a really good question. Yeah, that was great. I mean, I just, I love that you dig into these women. Do you have um, historians um, that are, that, I feel like you're having conversations with historians all the time. Are you? <laughs> I, not, not, well, um, I ish. Because here in the in London, where, where I live, um, is this fantastic school of Slavonic studies. 
and where one of the professors actually wrote my Bible. It's called Russia in the Age of Peter the Great. And in it, she answers, I think it's a thousand pages and I've read them all. And she answers all the questions, what they ate and how they traveled and how they lived. And of course, the changes that happened there in Russia. But equally, I quite often just shoot them an email and ask, what is this? Or can you help me with this article? Because I've seen in the footnotes, I check the footnotes of the book and I see that there's a fantastic article written in some forgotten journal of the 1970s. And they find it for me and send it to me. So oh, it's fantastic. That. It's like, ah. a, like a symbiosis. I love it. Okay, so um, my listeners have been asking me to ask authors to read a little bit from their book. So this is totally new. We're going to see how it goes. So uh, people listening or watching, please let me know what you think of this new feature. But Ellen, I'm so excited to hear your voice because your accent, your voice, just your energy. <laughs> I love it. So would you please read a couple of paragraphs for us? Give us the flavor of the Tsarina's daughter. Okay, so here comes the first page of the Tsarina's okay. daughter, just as in case you haven't seen the book yet. <laughs> here it is. Prologue. In the Winter Palace, St. Nicholas Day, December 6, 1741. Ivan is innocent. My little cousin is a baby and as pure as only a one-year-old can be. But tonight, at my order, the infant Tsar will be declared guilty as charged. I fight the urge to pick him up and kiss him. It would only make things worse. Beyond his nursery door, there is a low buzzing sound, like that of angry bees ready to swarm the winter palace. Soldiers' boots scrape and shuffle, spurs clink like stubby vodka glasses, and bayonets are being fixed to muskets. These are the sounds of things to come. The thought spikes my heart with dread. There's no other choice. It is Ivan or me. Only one of us can rule Russia. The other one is condemned to a living death. Reigning Russia is a right that has to be earned as much as inherited. He and my cousin, the regent, doomed the country to an eternity under the foreign yoke. Under their rule, the realm will be lost. The invisible holy bond between Tsar and people irretrievably severed. I, Elizabeth, am the only surviving child of Peter the Great's 15 sons and daughters. Tonight, if I hesitate too long, I might become the last of the siblings to die. Oh, bravo! <laughs> right Cliffhanger! Cliffhanger! <laughs> oh my god! Yes, it's sort of, you know that yourself, when when you write, if you sort of, and people always ask, are you a plotter? Or are you a pantser? And I actually, in the beginning, I said, what? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I'm wearing a skirt. <laughs> and, um, I, I think it's this moment, if you do a prologue, that you look for that moment where you can draw the reader right in. And my American publisher was the one who just gave me this incredibly valuable advice if we speak about tidbits. He said, Ellen, I want the conflict on page one. Okay, Russia can have only one ruler. And that was really it's such a fantastic advice for anybody who wants to write the conflict on page one. <laughs> and, and because you know that yourself nowadays, we don't have 100 pages anymore, as Herman Melville had it in Moby Dick, um, to, to draw the reader in. We basically have one page. And yeah. that is it. Yeah. I, I, thank goodness, too. Because <laughs> I have to say, I like Melville. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I feel like if I can skip to page 100, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. When, yeah. when, sort of, when he eats so, clam chowder again. <laughs> right. So how long did it get? Did it take you to get to that one page? Um... 
I think the first page is always a lot of work because I, I like the idea, I, again, that the opening sentence should somehow encapsulate what the book is about. So the first page is a real challenge. You should have the first sentence, which is about everything the book is about. And then, you know, you draw the reader in immediately already in the atmosphere and then comes the conflict. So there was a lot of filing, a lot of, you know, like sort of tips flying to get yes. that done. But I suppose it's it's the same for you. And then just keeping, yeah, just, just kill the darlings going in again and again. I suppose, I don't know how many drafts do you have? 20, 25? Oh, at least. Publication? <laughs> at, at least. least. At least. Hundreds. I mean, you know, anybody who says, so how can I write a novel? First tip, yes, write it. Second tip, be serious, be proud. Third tip, I mean, the work's not done. <laughs> the work's not really <laughs> finished. And just oh rewrite and, and never be content. Never yeah. be content. You're offering like a masterclass on writing more than talking about Sorry, it. Sorry, I love intended. it. I love <laughs> it. I'm, I'm so thrilled. I want to hear more. Actually, um, one of the questions that I wanted to ask you is what sort of advice do you have for debut authors now? So this is your second book, right? You're coming out. You've lived through the first. You've done well enough that you also have a third coming. <laughs> well, what <laughs> advice do you have for people to hang in? It is a very, very hard journey. It is wonderful, but also getting published is artistically the hardest feat because, you know, people listen to a song or actually let's start differently. They look at a painting in a second and they like it. They listen to a song in three minutes, but convincing an agent in the first step, because the agents are our gatekeepers to heaven. <laughs> really, if, if you want <laughs> to, to heaven, well yeah, said. Publishing well, heaven. Yes. Read your 250, 300, 600 page novel about a forgotten Russian empress or about some psychological suspense or what it is you write. Be sure about your genre. Don't write an in-between thing. They want to know what it is. It's just the hardest thing. So certainly doing your research, but at the same time, you can't jump on a bandwagon because the moment you jump, actually, the bandwagon has gone past. You can't second guess the market. So definitely writing what you want to write, but stick to the genre, do your research, you know, which agent actually sells books like yours? And most importantly, which publisher actually publishes books like yours? Don't don't send your crime novel to a cookbook publisher. And it happens. You laugh. But Rachel, you know, too, that it happens. But it is the hardest journey. But when it happens, it's incredibly rewarding. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I got I had the privilege of interviewing uh, Jennifer Egan. She has the book, The Candy House, coming out next week. Um, and I was interviewing her and she said, if you also um, like if you want to write it in a certain genre, write, you know, talk to me about those books. Don't talk to me about TV shows that you watch or movies. Right. Talk to And when yes. you're talking to editors and agents, talk about books. If you're going to be writing books, don't talk about TV. I thought that was also yeah. brilliant advice. Exactly. Of course, we'd all love, you know, to sort of have a, a treatment adapted. And a friend of mine who lives here in the same London village just got her book options and we sort of celebrated. Mm. We had champagne together. It's fantastic. But it's true. That's a second step. It might it might not happen. You are right. writing books and you want to draw your, your reader in. And it's an immense privilege because our reader gives us his and her most valuable. And that's not their money, but it's actually their time and their attention. Because yeah. nothing is scarcer today than that. Yeah, I love that. So what are the movie or TV or adaptation plans? 
Hey, I thought we shouldn't talk about that. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, I've written, I've written a treatment and I've actually written two treatments. One is just for Zarina, which was my debut novel, but I've equally written a treatment which provides material for four years of television because it might be a trilogy. It might be a quartet. I actually, okay. I have material for enough. Okay. And it's just, if you imagine the crown meets Game of Thrones meets uh, Downton Abbey, because mm -hmm. it's not only the Romanovs, but equally four other families that get drawn into this vortex of feminine passion and power that flies into the face of the brutally determined male patriarchy. And um, it's just the most fantastic story. I, I just love my girls. As I say, I can't believe I know, how lucky and I, I love am. Them. And thank so, you for loving them too. Yes, but sorry, just to clarify. So Jennifer Egan was not saying you should not look for your book to become a movie. She was saying that you should look to books as what you love and as comparables, right? Oh, yes, of course. Yes, yes. Course. Not yeah, talk about it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> sorry. So I wasn't clear about that. But okay, great. And so before we wrap up, tell me about the next book. When is it coming? The third part of the trilogy? And what should we expect? Well, hopefully next year. And of course, the third part of the trilogy has to be about Catherine the Great because it's been all been leading up to her. I'm still Yay! reading. I've started to write. I so far, sometimes I almost, because she has this mediatic omnipresence, I was hesitating. But uh, boy, she is a fantastic character. And I love that she's German. I'm of German origin. So we have a lot in common. And of course, with the economies of scale of research we've done, hey, she rocks. <laughs> Oh, well, I can't wait. Ellen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for writing these beautiful books. Everyone should go out and grab a copy right now. It's called The Tsarina's Daughter. Go out and buy one. And Ellen, may you sell many, many copies. Oh, I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. And bye-bye to America. <laughs> bye. Thank you.